This is Darrell Alia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 131. What if I had a steak dinner waiting on you in the tip of the week? Ooh, let's get to it. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7 Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the cash flow ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. But whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place mr hollywood himself presents the before the millions podcast and now your host deray olalaye what it do btm tribe we're back for another episode another installment of the before the millions podcast guys i am excited for today's episode as usual I'm excited for every single episode. I'm happy to be interviewing Mr. Mark Owens. Can't wait to get into his story. I'm happy for all the new listeners that have just recently heard about the podcast and you're starting to binge. I'm just super excited that we're able to congregate this week on episode 131. Okay, so let's go ahead and preface what's going to be discussed on today's episode. We have yet another strategy. We have yet another guest on the show, and Mark brings a totally different approach. As usual, I like to get guests on the show that bring different strategies to the table so that you guys can be like, hey, this is a strategy that best suits my wants, needs, desires, and resources. I'm going to jump in here. If none of what I'm saying is making sense to you, no worries. I actually came out with a guy last week, which has been doing really, really well. I've gotten a lot of great feedback from it. But I came out with a guy last week. If you go over to beforethemillions.com forward slash guide. And this guide, guys, this guide is the type of guide to help you navigate as you get started on your real estate investing journey. As you listen to a lot of these podcast episodes, you're going to start wondering which which strategy is right for you? What path are you supposed to go down? There's so many things out there, and I'm just not sure what vehicle to choose. So when you download this guide, you're going to take an assessment, a self-assessment, and just kind of see where you are, see what you know, see what you have. And from that assessment, you'll be able to decide the right vehicle to get started down your real estate investing journey. Again, that guide is over at beforethemillions.com forward slash guide. Okay. On today's episode, the strategy that we get into is is a popular strategy in the real estate community. And that strategy is called Burr. <laughs> that strategy is called Burr. The B-R-R-R-R strategy, which stands for buy, rehab, rent, refinance, and repeat. Mark has been pursuing this strategy for quite some years now. And Mark has gotten to the point to where he holds in his portfolio 100 units. 
Now you might think this is absurd. Why, why doesn't he just buy apartments? Right. And Mark actually has an argument as to why single family homes are better than apartments. So definitely stick around for that. But anyways, back to this Burr strategy that has everybody excited because you're in essence able to get into real estate, whether your money or borrowed money via a private money loan that charges you a high interest rate, regardless of how you get those initial funds and you're able to purchase the property. You're able to pull that money out after a certain point where you have tenants in that property and that property is now producing income. And that's where the refinance part comes in. So now you're able to pull that money out and essentially be in that property for no money, thus creating an infinite return. But it does have its downsides, just like any other strategy. Every strategy has downsides and not particularly negative things about the strategy, but more so things about you that may not fit the strategy. Going back to the guide. So it's called buy, rehab, rent. Then you pull the money out by refinancing and then you repeat. A fascinating strategy. As usual, we have a guest on today's show who talks specifically to that strategy and how to get started down the Burr method. Now, again, guys, this is something that you already know if you've already downloaded the guide, but just in case you haven't yet downloaded the guide, all real estate strategies in some form or fashion, they make money and they make lots of money. They make a lot of, a lot of people a lot of money. So I always want you guys to step away, take your mind off of the money, and think about yourself. Think about what your goals are. Think about what your resources are. When it comes to goals, I mentioned this on episode 130. My number one goal when I had a W-2 corporate job was to escape the right race in two years. That was my number one goal. Now, there are certain strategies that may make a lot of money, but those strategies would not help me achieve my number one goal. So wear a certain type of hat when you're listening to this episode and when you're listening to every episode. Wear the hat that has your goals attached to it because that way you can easily filter through a lot of these strategies to make sure that you're pursuing the right strategy. I bought a single family home with almost a $30,000 down payment just to cash flow $250. I needed a ton more of those down payments to be able to eventually get to the five or 10K that I was looking for when I wanted to initially quit my job. So that wasn't the best strategy to achieve my number one goal. So wear the hat of what your number one goal is, right? If your number one goal, because you love your job, is to continue down that path and you don't have a whole lot of time, but you got some liquid capital, wear that hat as you listen to these episodes so that you know something is for you. Because you may not be able to be a wholesaler, you may not be able to be a syndicator. You may be able to be a, just a passive investor in somebody else's deals. So when it comes to the birth strategy, look at it like this. There are certain people, especially with the refinance part, there are certain people that may not have the credit score to continue a birth strategy once started. You may be able to buy it. You may be able to rehab it. You may be able to rent it out. But when it comes to the refinance part, you have to be very careful to make sure that you have the credit score required to refinance. And not only to refinance once, but to repeat the process. Make sure that you have the right debt to income ratio. 
But let's just say you have the finance part right. You have the refinance part right. Your credit score is amazing, all that good stuff. There are other steps in this process. Just to, Again, I'm just breaking down this process, but I could break down just as, as similar another process and show you its pain points. Because of the burst strategy, and we talk about it on this episode, so you're going to hear me talk about this with Mark, the, you have to be spot on with your rehab numbers. So even if you have the other parts right, if you're not spot on with your rehab numbers, you may not even get to the point to where you get a refinance. Or you may end up in a totally upside down deal. So know your strengths and know your weaknesses and know what you're willing and able to improve on. And know your risk tolerance. This is why the guide is important. If you do a rehab for the next four months and the market turns and all your numbers that you thought were the numbers are no longer the numbers, what would that do to you? What would that do to your outlook? What would that do to your financial situation? These are things that you must factor. You must factor holding costs. You must factor that even during the holding periods, market fluctuations are bound to happen. And then you have to see what the profit is on the monthly spread, right? So if that person, again, was maybe somebody like me who wants to escape the rat race in two years, but maybe didn't have a great credit score. And by the way, I had an amazing credit score, but you know, for example purposes, this may be the worst thing for me to get into. But at the same time, there could be somebody on the other side of the pond who has a great credit score, who wants to invest in real estate and loves the idea of slow growth and building equity. Because again, their goals are totally different. Their resources may be totally different. So guys, when you're looking at your strategies, don't strictly focus on how much money you can make. How you make that money, like how you actually realize that money is a big factor. Like there's a big difference between equity and cash flow. Also, start focusing on your goals and then start finding the strategy that's gonna best help you pursue that goal. Again, I'm just giving you guys more ideas so that you can work these in as you listen to these episodes. There's another episode that's uh, coming up right after this, guys. It's gonna be on mortgage notes. One of my favorite episodes today, I learned so much on that show, and it's showing you how to buy distressed notes, but buying distressed notes, guys, is not going to be for everybody. It's going to sound so fun, guys. I promise you, I can't wait to episode 132. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be amazing, but at the same time, buying distressed notes is not for everybody. Buying notes in general may not be for everybody. You have to consider where you are, what you're working with, and what your goals are. Beforethemillions.com forward slash G-U-I-D-E. Get started, guys, the right way. Don't spend a year or two floundering or trying something and then realizing I should have went down a different path. Get started the right way. Beforethemillions.com forward slash guide. Okay, guys, let's go ahead and jump into the tip of the week, and then we'll get straight into the mean potatoes of today's show. DeRay's tip of the week. All right, so tip of the week. Now, regardless, no matter how good you are at live math, for some reason or another, live math requires like an extra level of concentration, regardless of how easy the math actually is. So I just want to make sure that if I do any live math for this tip of the week, as I show you how to save anywhere from $1,000 to $1,500 this year or next year, um, it may be wrong. <laughs> Disclaimer. Okay. Anyways, so I've been finding ways to save money. Naturally, it's a great cleanup process and it actually feels really, really good. And then when you save money and then you use that money on something else that you normally don't do, it feels even better. So recently I took a look at my expenses and I was like, what can go? What can go? 
And you guys know I'm super big on automation and I actually have a few tips of the week where I discuss delegate, automate, and delete. And I like processes and I like putting things on automation to make sure that I'm not doing a whole lot and I'm focused on doing the things that I actually love. But at the same time, I can't pass up on an opportunity when I know it's an opportunity to save a few dollars a month. Who can say amen to that? So what I decided when I was looking at my monthly expenses and I realized, I didn't realize it, I always knew this, but it dawned on me that why am I paying a bookkeeper $1,500 a year? Like the monthly expense wasn't really a whole lot, but when you look at it from an annual basis, it's like, wow, like, wow. And it's not a high price by any stretch of the imagination because bookkeepers base their prices off of the number of entries that you have on your bank statements. So oftentimes the very next month, I always do like quick reviews and make sure that, you know, things are copacetic, make sure that the bookkeeper is doing their job, journal entries are put in right, so on and so forth. I mean, I was an ex-accountant. Well, you can't was an ex-accountant. I am an ex-accountant. Okay. I told you guys, live math, live grammar, it just, it, it all goes downhill. But I was paying my bookkeeper $1,500 a year up until about two months ago. Just had to snip it off because I realized that I wasn't really saving any extra time. I still had to review the books and reviewing the books, whether it took me about 10 minutes or 15 minutes, maybe even 20 minutes and answering questions maybe once or twice throughout the month, not a whole lot. My bookkeeper is really good. Once or twice throughout a month, if there's like a weird expense, but that was about it. So maybe 30 minutes of my time the entire month. When I eliminated that expense, I realized over the past two months that I still spend about 30 minutes a month on my books. I'm still looking at the same journal entries. There are a lot of those things are automated through the bookkeeping software that I use and any bookkeeping software that you guys are using. So essentially, I'm still doing the same reviews. I'm still uh, answering, quote unquote, those miscellaneous questions because these are randomly uncategorized expenses. And I was just like, dude. Like I just earned back about a steak dinner every month. And it was just looking at my expenses and deciding something's got to go. So here's the tip. One expense, one month. It can't be something that just happens one time, one monthly expense. And it may add an extra five or 10 minutes to what you do. But by getting rid of that expense, you're going to create a whole lot more margin. What can that be for you? Oh, I know you're thinking about it now. I can't wait till you decide. It's going to be amazing. So that's the tip of the week this week. One expense that can get you a steak dinner. So if you really think about it, this tip of the week and your steak dinner is on me. You're welcome. Let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. Mark, how's it going today? Hey, great, DeRay. Thank you very much for asking. Thanks for having me on as well. Yeah, I'm super excited. And and before we kind of get into some strategy and have our listeners walk away with some nuggets, let's 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 kind of take it back in the time machine, Mark. You you have over 100 units and you manage them yourself. But let's yeah. take it back into the time machine. Like, why real estate? When real estate? And and kind of what were you doing at the time that maybe you were discontent with that had you start thinking about alternative methods of maybe pursuing a better life? Okay, let's get back to 2001. 
uh, I was in the IT field and I was a Microsoft certified trainer and I was making really good money, uh, more money than I deserved. I was, they were paying me a hundred bucks an hour. I was making between 130 and 150 a year. My wife wasn't working. She, we just had a son and, uh, and she was going back to school for a couple of years. And so we were just depending on my income and I was a contract trainer, which meant that there was no job security at all. If I got sick or got in a car accident or, you know, something worse happened that, you know, there wouldn't be any money at all coming in. So, uh, around 2001, I started thinking that real estate might be a good place for me to invest my money. I was making really good money, but I'd never like lived up to my income. I always lived below my income and I saved a bunch of money up. And I think I had around 130 in that range uh, when I bought my first rental in 2002. And when I started buying rentals, the whole thing for me was I want to buy rentals that cash flow. So, and I want to get like, you know, 10 to 20 of them so that in the event that something happens to me, that I would have enough money coming in to just carry my basic living expenses, my mortgage on my house, my, you know, gas and electric bill, food, you know, stuff like that. Was, I think I needed like 3000 a month just to get by. So my goal was to get enough houses to just get that. And uh, at that time I had no idea that I would be, you know, where I am today. But you know, what happens is it's, it's really easy to get addicted to the cash flow of these things. And, you know, you think just, well, let me get one more, let me get one more, let me get one more. And, you know, a couple of years into it, I had maybe three years into it. I had, I guess about 25 units. And I thought, you know, my wife's going to have a job in a few months. I can get out of this stuff. Now I can get out of the IT stuff and just do real estate full time. And it was never like a plan from the beginning. You know, the original plan was just to have enough money coming in to, you know, cover my butt in case, you know, I couldn't work. And then, uh, you know, as things, you know, unfolded in front of me and I saw the potential, I was like, man, you know, I can get out of the rat race completely. I don't, I don't have to be stuck with this, you know, nine to five stuff anymore. And I was really excited about it. So that that's like the very beginning of, you know, my investment career. I like that. I love that a lot. And this is kind of a different approach than I normally hear, but it seems as though you took the approach to where you were like, I'm trying to buy enough rentals to just satisfy me at a minimal, at, at just my basic needs. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't want to do too much. Like, and then, and then when I get to a certain point, like, uh, maybe I get another one, maybe I get another one. Whereas most people, it's like, I'm trying to get as many as possible, like from the get go. But I think eventually this, the, the, the kind of switched for you, right? You were like, well, this is something that is profitable, right? This is something that has taken a large burden off myself and my family. And I think that I can, I can actually do this full time. Right. That's so, 100% correct. Yep. So, when you when you took on the pursuit to do this full time, was there a specific goal in mind at that point? And how did you go about setting that goal? And and again, I, I want to speak to goal setting really quick. How did you go about setting that goal and then achieving that goal? Sure, it was I, I put together a spreadsheet that calculated the cash flow on my properties, and that I used that as my guide. And you got to like let's go back to two thousand two, two thousand three, two thousand four. There was no bigger pockets. There were no meetups. There was no Facebook. Google was just getting started. Uh, I didn't know any other landlords the first couple of years. I was on my own. I didn't even know that it was, you know, like I'd never even thought that there are people out there that own 100 units. Like I never even thought about that. And then, uh, you know, I discovered the Burr method I, kind of on my own. I thought I invented the damn thing, but apparently <laughs> I, I really did because I, I rehabbed a couple of houses and I was using hard money for the purchase. And the, and the renovation. And then I would sell them. And then I thought to myself, man, 
instead of selling the damn house, why don't I just refinance it and keep it? And thus, in my own mind, I discovered the Burr method. Uh, independently of anybody else, it just it all made sense to me. And once I discovered that, then that really enabled me to you know take my you know take my real estate investing career to the next level. Because what happens is you know for most of the listeners, you know, if they've got fifty thousand, one hundred thousand dollars, one hundred fifty thousand, even two hundred thousand, if they use regular bank financing, and they I when I started, you had to put ten percent down. Now most banks want twenty percent down. If you do that and you pay for your closing costs, eventually you're going to run out of money. You might get two houses, three, four, five, six, and then you're out of money. When I discovered the Burr method, I saw that is wow, man. Like I don't have to be using all of my money. I can just use a little bit or maybe none at all, and I can continue to build my portfolio using other people's money and using the Burr method. And uh, that is one of the things that really was a life-changing event for me. Uh, one of the other things for me was that I had confidence in the numbers. You know, I wasn't buying for appreciation. I always thought that that was a mistake. The market goes up, the market goes down. You know, there are a lot of people today that bought houses in 2005 and 14 years later, you know, the house is still worth what they paid for. They haven't gotten any appreciation at all or very little. So I always thought that cash flow really was the name of the game. And that, you know, that has definitely held true for me. Yeah, for sure. And I want to dive deep into the fact that you, so you've recognized something that I think a lot of investors come across. That I, I came across this definitely. It's like, hey, if I put down this twenty thousand or this thirty thousand dollar down payment for my first or my second investment property, and my goal is to escape the rat race, or my goal is to create enough passive income to alleviate my family from all their stress, how many more of those down payments do I need? Right. Right. So, 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 explain to me what, like, give me numbers as far as what the perfect Burr strategy looks like, so the listeners can kind of get a grasp on another methodology. And what is Burr? Like B R R R. What do those things stand for? Sure. The the let's go through that first. So the Burr stands for the B is for buy, and then the R is for renovate, and then the next R is for rent. Rent the property out, then the next one is refinance it. And when you refinance, so when you buy it, you're using hard money, you're using somebody else's money, private money or hard money. So you you borrow money, you buy the house, you renovate it, you rent the house out, then you refinance it to pay your hard money lender back. And then the final R is repeat, just keep on going. Uh, just to use some very simple numbers, because I know it's, it's difficult without like a whiteboard or something like that, but just to use some simple numbers. Now I'm in the Baltimore market, the numbers that I'm going to use, I'm just going to use round numbers. It might not apply to San Francisco or San Diego or New York, but in my local market, these numbers work. Let's say that we find a neighborhood and we find a house that needs a lot of work and the after repair value, the ARV for the properties in this neighborhood are $100,000. Then I would use the typical rehabber formula to analyze the deal, I would take 70% of the after repair value. So 70% of $100,000 is $70,000. And then you subtract your repair cost. And we'll say in this instance, you know, we, we need to do $20,000 worth of work of the house. So 100,000 times 70% is 70,000 minus the 20,000 in repair costs brings us down to 50,000. That's the most we should pay for that house, whether we're gonna renovate it and flip it, or whether we're going to renovate it and do the Burr method and keep it. So let's say we find a property either on our own or it's listed or from a wholesaler or it's an REO or it could be, you know, you buy it at a courthouse auction, you get that house for 50,000. You're going to want to borrow at least 70 from a hard money lender. 
75 would be even better because you're going to have some closing costs when you purchase the property and you're going to have some holding costs between the time that you purchase it and the time that you refinance it or get it rented out or sell it. So those holding costs are going to include interest payments to the hard money lender. You're going to have your utility bills. You're going to have uh, potentially property taxes and as well as insurance. So you're going to have some carrying costs from the day you buy it until the day you, you know, you get a tenant in it or you sell it. So that's why it's, you know, usually better to have, you're going to have to have some money in the bank. So let's say that you get this house for 50. You have to spend three or $4,000 for closing costs. Now you're in it for 53, 54. You spend 20,000 on the renovation. Now you're in it for maybe 73, 74, maybe a couple thousand dollars in holding costs. You're all in for 75,000. That's with the purchase, the closing costs, is the renovation, and the holding costs, all that combined is 75,000. You get a tenant in there in the Baltimore market for a house like that, you're probably getting 1,300 a month. Now you contact a bank to do the refinance. Banks typically are gonna refinance at 75 to 80% of the loan to value, which should match your ARV. The loan to value, they're gonna send an appraiser out there and hopefully the appraiser goes out and says, hey man, this house is worth 100,000. That's perfect. The bank gives you 80% of that hundred thousand, you walk away with eighty. You pay your hard money lender back the seventy you borrowed from him. Get a little bit of money left over to reimburse you for the holding costs and the closing costs and all those other things. That's the perfect world. It doesn't always work out like that. Sometimes you might be in it for you know one, two, three, ten thousand dollars. That does happen. So you really got to be sharp with your numbers. Like if you don't have a lot of money in the bank, you really got to be sharp with your numbers. If you've got a bunch of money in your bank and in your account and you want to conserve that money, and it, and it runs over a little bit, it's not going to be that big of a deal. It's not going to kill you. But if you've only got $1,000 in the bank, it can be devastating. So you're really going to be careful with the numbers. So what would your what would your, uh, what would your loan payment be typically for that type of property? Well, if it's like, you know, say if it's 12% interest and you borrow $70,000, then your payment's going to be $700 per month in interest. Because most of the hard money lenders are just going to charge interest yep. on the note. And it could be anywhere from, you know, 10 to 18%, depending on the lender. So I'm speaking to the uh, the long term financing. Once you've replaced that with the bank, what would your what would your all in total monthly cost be? Well, it depends on how much the taxes and insurance are. But I I would use there's a an app that I use. It's a free app. It's called Carl's Mortgage Calculator. And Carl's starts with a letter K, and I use that thing all the time. It's just it's a perfect tool. It's you know like I said it's it's free. Yep. And uh, it shows you the amortization schedule. You know, if you want to click on one part of the app, it'll show you the amortization schedule. So you know how much you're paying down towards principal every month and all that stuff. So it's really helpful. So that's what I would use to determine what my payment's going to be after the refi. But on average for a $100,000 property, um, again, you just using this example, because I want to walk the listeners through what, what I'm hearing. And you can correct me. What I'm hearing is that you're going to get a loan from the bank and that loan is going to be $80,000. And you were all in at 70, between 70 and 75. And it seems as though you've done a, a ton of work that you have. You've risked a lot, right? And as far as time, uh, maybe it's a three or four month rehab. Maybe it's even less than that um, worth of holding costs. And it's like a lot of this risk for you to maybe break even in the very beginning. And then I want to hear like what the spread is between your monthly payments and what the tenants are paying you. Cause maybe there's a large spread there to where it makes sense, but sure. that break even in the beginning doesn't really sound a whole lot appealing. Again, I'm just poking through theories because sure. I don't want the listeners to be like, well, Dre's not asking the right question. So I just want to kind of get a little bit more of a basis. Yeah. And I definitely appreciate that. There's two parts to it. The first part is you're going to have equity in the property. If the bank refinances you and gives you 80,000 and it's worth a hundred, you've got 20,000 in equity. 
Now, all that equity isn't like real money because if you sell it with a realtor, you might be paying a five or 6% commission. Uh, you might be paying, you know, half of the transfer and recordation tax or something like that. So I would typically subtract 10% from the sales price to cover the transaction cost. So if you sell the house for a hundred, you're going to net 90. It's getting thinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. You, you got in in real dollars. You probably got about ten. Listen, I'm not doing the HGTV thing. I'm talking real dollars. I love and I love it. I love that. I love that. In real dollars. You're going to probably have ten thousand in equity, which is still it's money. You know, it's not money that's in the bank, but it's there if you need it. Uh, hopefully, if the market at least stays flat. Uh, but the other part is, I did. I used to call this mortgage calculator while we were talking, and the principal. If you borrowed $80,000 at 6% interest for 30 years, your principal and interest payment would be about $480. Now, if you had a couple hundred dollars on there, you know, for taxes and insurance, depending on, you know, what jurisdiction you're in and what the tax rate is, uh, you could be paying $700 per month, $750. That's all in principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. If you're all in for $750 and the rent's $1,200, that's a $450 spread. But that's not real world either, because that doesn't include, you know, future repairs, vacancies, turnovers, you know, stuff like that. So that's why I put together a spreadsheet that I used to use where I would fill in the blanks for all that stuff, like $50 or $75 per month in escrow in case I need a hot water heater next year. Or, uh, I would subtract 10% of my rent to cover vacancies and stuff like that. And I was looking for a 30% cash on cash return. When I started, that's what I was looking for. And uh, it's kind of hard to calculate that when you use the burr because most of the deals I've done with the burr, I haven't, I've been out of pocket with zero and you can't, you know, divide by zero. So I get, I guess you get call it almost an infinite return. Yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, that's with experience doing that. And some of those were with larger apartment buildings. They weren't just with little single family homes. Why do you believe that single families cash flow better than multifamily? Yeah. From my experience, the, the biggest thing is that people stay in single family homes much longer then they stay in apartments. I'll, if I rent a single family home, I'm, the tenant's typically in there six, seven, eight years. If I rent an apartment out there, typically the turnover is like two, two and a half years. So there's a lot more turnovers in apartments. And, and that's a, that's a big cost. You know, it's, it's a huge cost. Another, there's another thing, and this isn't really a cash thing, but when you have an apartment building, say you've got 10 apartments in it, you're going to get tenants constantly calling, complaining about other tenants. That, you know, they leave their shoes in the hall, they stink, they're not throwing their trash in the dumpster, they got the music on at, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning, waking everybody in the building up. So that's that's just like a lifestyle problem that you might have to deal with, uh, which is manageable. But as far as the cash goes, from my experience, uh, single family homes cash flow better. Plus, they're easier to find and they're easier to sell. You know, if you're going to look for a, a cash flowing or an apartment building and use the Burr method, it might take you a year to find a good deal. But at my market, I can find a good deal as far as houses go just about every day. I love it. I love it. When when did you, and, well, and everybody's different, but for you personally, like when did you, and your wife could have even been different, but when did you feel like it was a good time to completely leave your job? Like when did you, was there, again, going back to goals, like at what point were you comfortable? Or did you have an initial goal? You met that goal. You're like, eh, let's wait a little bit longer. Or did you leave way ahead of your goal? Like kind of what, fill me in on that time period and how you made that transition. You know, that's a good question. For, for me, I was making about 150 a year in my IT job, and my wife was making zero. Around 2006, 2000, about 2006, my income off my rentals was about 50000 per year. 
but I wasn't living on that. I didn't, I didn't get by a bigger house and a bigger car and all that stuff. That was just like money that I just kept to invest. So what happened was a few years after I started, my wife had finished school. She was going to get a job as a nurse. She already had a job offer paying a little over 50,000 a year. So I'm looking at, I'm doing the math and I'm thinking, okay, I need 150. I get 50 off my rentals. My wife's going to make 50. So that's a hundred. There's only a $50,000 gap that I need to cover. I, I could make $50,000 a year hauling trash if I want to. And uh, so I just thought, you know what, I'm going to, when she's, you know, when she gets her job, I'm getting out of this stuff and I'm just going to go hustle and, you know, I'll, I'll wholesale, I'll rehab houses, I'll do whatever to, to cover that gap. And I'll just keep buying rentals and eventually I'll cover it. And it just so happens that I met a guy that was a full-time wholesaler and I didn't know him that well, but he had, he was doing it full-time for a couple of years and he was very successful. And I just, I, you know, I asked the guy, I was like, Hey, listen, man, I'm just curious. Like I know you're wholesaling full-time. I'm, a, you know, almost a full-time landlord. Would you be interested in partnering up? Because I can bring a different set of skills to the table. You know, I've renovated a bunch of houses that I own and apartments and, uh, you know, I've got guys that work for me. I know, you know, just different buyers and all this stuff. And he actually agreed, uh, to let me, you know, partner with him on the wholesale deals. And the way that that worked out was his job was to make the phone ring. Like he was the marketing guy. And when the, and when the phone rang, it was my job to answer it, analyze the deal, find a buyer, take it to the table. And uh, that worked out real well for me because it got me out. That's when I started to learn the power of the networking, like, you know, meeting the buyers, meeting the title attorneys, you know, meeting the sellers, meeting the contractors. Like that's when I really started to recognize the value of the networking in this business. And uh, so I quit my job. I started, my wife got a job. I started wholesaling with this guy and I made more money wholesaling than I was making in the computer business. You know, for a couple of years, I was making well more, a lot more than I was making in the IT business. And that was, you know, maybe two and a half years before the crash, around 2007, 2008, I, I did really well in wholesaling. And I took the money from that and I just kept buying properties. And so when the, the wholesaling actually like died, like when the market changed, it was like one week, like everything changed. The banks were telling the buyers, like, you know, we're not doing any refis. Like the business ended, but I was good because I kept investing the money that I was making in wholesaling. I kept investing in into buying more rentals. And by the time the market crashed, I probably had close to 50 rentals. That's awesome. Lifestyle design acceleration hacks. What is your favorite before the millions book? Ah, oh, man. You know what? There's so many of them. Uh, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is great. Rocket Fuel has been a game changer for me with some other businesses that I've started. Uh, there's, I can't just pick one book because it, it, there's just so many of them. You know, 10X, Grant Cardone's 10X book. It's not a really a real estate book. It's a mindset book. And uh, the, the issue with a lot of the books like, like 10X, these motivation books, we require constant motivation. We have to constantly do it because it's really easy to just – you know, okay, well, I work so hard for three months. I want to take some time off. Think of, think of exercise. If you exercise, you go run every day and all that, and then you stop for a month. It's really hard to get started back up. You know, same thing with diet. So we have to constantly remind ourselves, like, man, I got to stay motivated. I got to stay motivated. Part of the way that you do that is by removing the negative influences from your life. If you if your parents are like, oh, rental suck, don't do that. Aunt Sally bought them in 1970, and she lost money and had bad tenants. Then don't tell your parents you're buying rentals. You know, I know it doesn't have anything to do with books. I'm 
Sorry. No, no, no. That, 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 that is awesome information. I definitely love that. And I appreciate that wisdom. Um, okay. So we're, 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 we're going to go with uh, 10X by Grant Cardone. Awesome. Awesome. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. Man, you know what? I don't have a lifestyle design app that I use. You know, my, my app's in my head. I still use my head. Do you, uh, do you have a calendar? Use uh, yeah, I use, yeah, I use just Google Calendar. Yeah, I, I have to. I, mean, I missed the lunch today because I didn't put it in my calendar. I forgot. Uh, we're not going with the calendar then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you, what's your, what's your CRM? Uh, I mean, I use Excel. Well, Excel. I use Excel for, I'm sorry, for, I use Google contacts for like all my contacts, for my tenants, my buyers, my sellers, my personal life. Like I just use, I use Google stuff. I use Google calendar. I we're going to go uh, with Google suite. The whole Google yeah, suite. That'll work. There we go. I love it. I love it. I love it. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? The freedom that I have. You know, it's like if if I decide that tomorrow I'm going to go hiking in the woods near my house, I don't have to ask anybody. I just go. Tonight I'll call the guys at work for me and say, hey, man, tomorrow I'm not going to be available between like, you know, eight and noon. And they're good. You know, it's like I got five guys that work for me full time that help to make my life easy. Uh, but it's just the freedom. I, it's like, I don't really work for money. I could go buy a lot more houses and make a lot more money, but that would bring more stress to my life. And the stress might hurt me more than the money helps me. Mm. So I've kind of found a nice little balancing point for me where I make enough money where I can enjoy my life and, and making more money probably wouldn't make me any happier. I love that. What, what were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? it was a time thing. It was just, you know, it was going to take a lot of my time, you know, time that I would rather spend doing other things, you know, just hanging out with my family or friends or just, you know, sometimes just sitting around doing nothing. That's something I actually really enjoy sitting around doing nothing. Mm. I love and, it. Uh, so it was a time thing. And, and it's funny because the older I get, the, you know, the more I enjoy sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> hey, I mean, I mean, I'm in cahoots with you, man. I love that. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? And it would have to be my wife uh, because she stood by me. She believed in me. She trusted me. Uh, she, she never questioned me. And, uh, and that made a huge difference. You know, that, that made all the difference. If I, if I had a wife that was, you know, constantly like, you're working too much. I want to get to dinner tonight. I want to get a bigger house. You know, she just, she put her trust and faith in me and, uh, and it paid off. Boom. Last but not least. Why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention of getting to the millions? Because you don't really want it. Mm. I, mean, I can only speak for guys. If guys went after real estate the way they go after girls, they'd all be rich. Yeah. You know, put the yeah. same effort into that as you go after you know getting another girlfriend, and you'll be good. There you go. There you go. I love it. I love it. Love it, Mark. This has been simply amazing. If the listeners want to connect with you, ask you a question or two, find out a little bit more about you. Where can they find some of that information? Easiest place is my website, markowens.com. And my email is mark at markowens.com. And there's links there to my Facebook group and you know Instagram and all that other crap. There we go. There we go. I love it, Mark. This has been simply, simply inspirational. I've gotten so much away from your message. I know the, the listeners have as well. All the links that you mentioned will be in the show notes, Mark. Thank you again for coming on the show. And we'll talk to you very, very soon. Hey, thank you so much for the ray. I appreciate it.